You're listening to Lanyap, a weekly digest of news, personal finance, brotherly banter, and whatever else is on our minds. From Stokes Family Office. Greg and Doug Stokes with Lanyap Podcast. Thank you so much for joining us today. We've got a full slate of items to discuss today. It's been very volatile in the markets last week. On Wednesday, inflation numbers year over year came out higher than expected. Year over year inflation is running at about 8.3%. The market was expecting 8.1%. So while gas prices have continued to decline over the last six or so months, inflation was still really high and higher than expected by the market. And as a result, the markets are kind of in the area that they were in in the June timeframe. The S&P 500 in June got to about 3,600 points. Right now, we're about in the mid-3,800s. So it'll be interesting to see if we retest the June lows. But all in all, a very choppy period, very interesting. A lot of things are happening globally and in the economic state of affairs. So Doug, what do you make of everything that's going on right now? I'm not surprised by the inflation print. It looked like the market was at least expecting a much lower print than came out. And I think the scary component was the what you'll call core CPI, which is excludes volatile categories like food and energy, which I think is kind of a BS thing from an inflation perspective because the most money that people spend on is, is you're filling up your gas tank and buying groceries every week. But I guess that's an aside. I still hold the belief and the expectation that inflation will come down pretty dramatically over the next couple of quarters. And a lot of that is in the data. This is from Ken Fisher. He posted this today around one o'clock today. He said, digging deeper into last Tuesday's headline CPI print shows persistent price pressures in some categories, but the cost of many goods are well off their peaks. Monthly CPI data likely remains volatile in the months ahead. But always important to look beyond the headline numbers. And he just posts a chart, which is really interesting. So the biggest decline since its peak earlier this summer, natural gas is off 67%. The Baltic Dry Index, which is shipping, down 66%. Gasoline, down 46%. Shanghai Freight Index, which is shipping from Asia, down 44%. Eggs are down 36%. Water, down 34%. Crude oil down 34%, milk down 19%. And then he goes on to just talk about one of the major components of core CPI, so not the volatile food and energy component, is what's called owner's adjusted rent, which is basically a lagging indicator of increases in rental rates, which we're seeing across the country because of the inflation in housing prices in 2021, specifically in the early part of 2022 people that are buying those houses to rent them out. And the fact that there's a shortage of housing, rents have been increasing. But if you're looking what's happening, and we're going to talk about this in a second, but if you're looking at what's happening in the price of real estate over the last several months, one would expect that the rents for real estate would lag the prices of real estate. So if prices of real estate are coming down, just like vice versa, if prices of real estate are going up, rents are going up, price of real estate is coming down, you would expect that rents would come down too. And if that's the case, then rent being a big portion of inflation, inflation would come down as well. So my thinking is that, yes, the market was caught off guard with the higher than expected inflation number, but I still think the bigger risk is over the near term is recession and deflation and not 
like 1970s style runaway inflation. Right. If you look at the uh, year over year inflation, it's certainly high, but it is trending downwards. In June, inflation was 9.1%. And then in July, it was like 8.5. So 8.3 is higher than expected, but it is moving in the right direction. And I agree with you that there's a lot of components to the inflationary picture that seem to be slowing down. And I do agree with you 100% that the risk is that the policymakers are sort of making decisions from a interest rate standpoint with the analogy of like late 1970s when inflation was existent for 15 years and they wanted to nip it in the bud. But I think the risk really exists from the standpoint of the policymakers going too far, raising rates too high, too fast, and that causes an extended recession, deflation, et cetera. And I think that's kind of what the market is basically telling us is that there is a lot, and that's just represented in the volatility that exists and I think it's really fascinating kind of what I've seen in the housing market. It seems like that there's been this sort of like a complete slowdown in the transactions associated with homes. And a large part of that has to do with the fact that mortgage rates are so high. The 30-year fixed mortgage rate right now, as of today, this is September 19th, is 6.42%. This time last year, it was about 2.8%. So it's just things have moved so dramatically. And just to put that into context from the standpoint of a regular mortgage payment, the monthly mortgage payment, and this is from Charlie Bolello, the median home payment a year ago was $1,600 a month. Now it's $2,400 a month. So just the costs associated with servicing your loan, et cetera, have gone up dramatically. And that's money that would be going to discretionary spending, et cetera. So just presumably that would also matriculate down the economy. And I also found it was really fascinating what is taking place in sort of micro economies around the country. I saw this is from a Bloomberg article and they list the average 30-year monthly mortgage payment in various cities like New York, Miami, et cetera. And that $2,400 number that I just said was the average 12-month mortgage payment in certain places like Silicon Valley, California. The average monthly mortgage, or this is the median existing home price based upon 20% down and a 30-year mortgage rate is close to $10,000 a month. So things are getting really, really expensive really quickly. The Fed raising rates has certainly had an effect on the housing side of the equation. And I really wouldn't be surprised if we start to see that throughout the rest of the economy. In fact, Doug, last week I sent you an article from the Washington Post about tips to save money while you're dining out. And those are not typically pieces that you read when things are really good. Yeah. I mean, I think that I'm in the camp that we're, if we're not in a recession right now, we're quickly approaching one. Now, it doesn't change my behavior from a portfolio management perspective. Anytime we're putting portfolios together, you have to have the idea that you're going to go through. I think we talked about this on a previous podcast. Morgan Housel said it best. If you're planning to have the world blow up a couple of times a decade, or at least one time a decade, then that's that's a better way to approach things than to have a specific forecast in mind. So expectations are better than forecasting. And so that's how we design portfolios. We have no idea where the markets or the economy is going short term, but the expectation is that you're going to have some interruption along the way. Putting a forecasting hat, you know, let me just caveat that I don't know where anything is going, nor does anybody else. But you're exactly right. You don't see those types of articles during boom times. People are hurting 
financially because cost of goods are going up, cost of service debt is going up. I think we talked about positives that most of the mortgages that are in existence right now are long-term fixed rate mortgages. But this is an engineered slowdown in my mind to be able to get inflation back in check and to be able to have breathing room for the next recession to be able to cut rates again. And so <laughs> I, I, uh, I just generally think that you know, this is the part of the cycle in which we're going to go through several of them throughout our lifetime and you know, recessions happen and there's another side to them. While you're talking, I was reading about rethink the way you order. Their suggestion is to order two appetizers instead of an appetizer and an entree. <laughs> Don't drink at dinner and then go to happy hours and take leftovers home. This is stuff that screams sort of that people are not going out and spending money. I also saw that prices of like fine watches have gone down dramatically. We talked about it on a previous podcast that like filet mignon and ribeye are down in price and people are spending more money on cheap beer. So it's going to take a while for this data to get to the Fed. But I think that they're going to see that. I agree with you that we're probably in a recession. And then it wouldn't surprise me if they backed off their rate hiking expectations. Right now, the market expects that the Fed funds rate, meaning the rate at which it costs banks to borrow money from the Fed, will be about 4% at the end of the year, which means that the Fed is expected to raise rates another 1.5% or so between now and then. It wouldn't surprise me if they slowed down that process. The other thing, too, is that inflation on a year-over-year basis, it's all relative. And we're going to start to get into a on a year-over-year basis, we're comparing things, obviously, from August 2022 to August 2021, but inflation really didn't start to pick up until the end of 2021. And so on a relative basis, on a year-over-year basis, it really should start to slow down. The Fed's targeted rate is 2%. Whether or not we get to that in 2023 remains to be seen, but I do think that the market is expecting the Fed funds rate to be about 4.5% or so in 2023 before the Fed starts to cut rates. And I personally wouldn't be surprised if they went ahead of schedule and basically cut rates before then, but we'll see. Yeah, I think the hardest component to all of this is the rapid amount of change in inflation and interest rates and the incredible volatility in markets over the last nine months. Thinking about this from the perspective of a business owner, especially a business owner that has high fixed costs and has debt. And so, for example, let's say you have a lot of inventory, you're a manufacturing company, you've got a lot of inventory that you're ordering or raw materials that you're ordering. And the rapid change in energy prices, the rapid change in cost of plastic, the rapid change in you know shipping costs, et cetera. How do you plan for your business? Your cost of debt? Yeah. And then a lot of these businesses have floating rate debt. And so your debt increased by a couple percentage points just by virtue of the Federal Reserve raising rates. You haven't swapped out a floating rate loan for a fixed rate loan. And so your cost of debt is increasing alongside your cost of inventory and inputs. And then at the same time, wage inflation has picked up. And so wages that are going up, it's just a very difficult time to be in the business of being in business because there's so much variability and volatility around all of these things. So I think the first thing that needs to occur is just some general stability. And that could be you know stable, shipping prices, stable gas prices, interest rates stabilizing. If we can get there, then I think you can see a lot of this stuff start to shake out. But it's very difficult to be a business owner 
and a big participant in the global economy and try to manage a business with a lot of variability. I think of the same thing from the perspective of somebody that has a financial net worth that has some targets around liquidity. A year ago, this time last year, the one-year treasury was 0.07%. It's now north of 4%. That is a rapid change in interest rates over 12 months. I mean, think about that from the perspective of somebody that had a fixed bond portfolio a year ago that was yielding, you know, let's say one or 2%. That portfolio is down, but I guess the silver lining there is they're able to lock in guaranteed rates from the US government at 12 to 24 months at 4% now when it was, you know, less than one tenth of 1% 12 months ago. So the volatility and change in prices and rates is really the most difficult component here. I think if we get to some level of stability, we can at least resume some level of economic growth because I don't think businesses are spending money now with the idea that they don't know where prices are going to be six months from now. Right. And I think that's reflected in the stock market as well, too, that the volatility that exists that you just acutely discussed from the standpoint of a business owner, it's also that same volatility is manifesting itself in the stock market. We're about 178 days through 2022 as the day we're recording this. And the only years with higher volatility in stocks at this point is from Bolello as well, too. Like there's five periods here. The 1930s, Great Depression, World War II, dot-com crash, the GFC in 2009, global financial crisis, and the COVID crash of 2020. So there is just a tremendous amount of volatility in all aspects of business and the same thing in the markets. Even though we have inflation in the 8% range, unemployment is really low. And the unemployment is like 3.5%. So I think that's such an interesting sort of dichotomy of what's going on right now. I think ultimately what the Fed is trying to do is slow down the economy, make sure people spend less money so that inflation kind of cools down. But that probably means that they're expecting some job losses. Their objective, like we've discussed earlier, is they want to have inflation at 2% and their other objective is to have full employment. And they're probably thinking to themselves that they can afford to have some job losses in exchange for getting inflation under control. Because truly inflation is a tax on everybody and that makes things way more difficult. And they want to make sure that that gets to their long-term objective. Yeah. I found this article from Ben Carlson really interesting. The title of the article is How Much Do Interest Rates Matter to the Stock Market? And he was just going through, and this is where I got the data on the one-year treasury a year ago was 0.07%. It's up almost 60x in a year. So it's now at you know about 4%. Traditionally, the idea is interest rates have a major impact on the value of assets because theoretically, the value of an asset is its discounted future cash flows. So basically, the way that works is If you look at it in the future, whether it's a business or a piece of real estate or whatever, the value of that business or real estate or whatever it is, is discounted cash flows in the future based upon the current interest rate environment. So if you have low interest rates, then that would mean the value of those assets are increasing and vice versa. High interest rates, the value of those cash flows in the future are decreasing. And so he really puts that to the test. What real impact do interest rates have on the valuation of assets? He basically comes to the conclusion is that interest rates have a lot less of an effect on valuation than does inflation. And inflation is the real killer. 
to the value of assets. So interest rates can be high or relatively high compared to where they have been historically. But if inflation is also high and unstable or unstable, then you've got some real problems. So basically, he was saying, look, the more pertinent thing to do is to pay attention where inflation is going and less so to what interest rates are doing. And interest rates are, for the most part, controlled at the short end, at least, by the Federal Reserve. But if inflation comes down, then that's really a positive for any sort of financial asset, whether it's stocks, bonds, real estate, et cetera. You know, inflation is a true killer, and as you mentioned, a tax on everybody. What is your take on the impact of the risk premium to treasuries on various asset classes in today's day and age? So you mentioned that the one-year treasury is like 4% now, and it used to be 0.07%, and the 10-year treasury is 3.4% or 3.5% or something like that. So there's a couple of comments I want to make, and I'll get back to the question I just posed to Doug. But right now, the yield curve is inverted, basically, meaning that you get paid more interest on a one-year treasury or two-year treasury than a 10-year treasury or longer. Secondly, theoretically, you're not taking any risk lending money to the United States government in the form of a treasury. Then the reason behind that is because, number one, the U.S. has never defaulted on its debt. And number two, theoretically, the U.S. could continue to print money and pay their loans back. So theoretically, there's no risk associated with lending money to Uncle Sam. And so any other investment, you should be getting more return than the treasury by taking that sort of risk. And so that's typically been a way of pricing assets based upon what the risk-free rate is. Doug, now that the risk-free rate is 4%, for example, for one year, 3.4% for 10 years, how do you think that that affects current asset prices and the expectation on a prospective basis for returns of other assets like bonds and stocks? Yeah. So I think this is a really good point. So there's a concept called risk premium that you mentioned. And basically, that is the extra return that you would get theoretically by owning something that's more risky than what would be considered risk-free, which is a US government bond, right? So the equity risk premium is the excess return expected to receive by owning equities versus a US government bond. So if the US government bond is 4% currently, an equity risk premium would be 4% plus whatever that spread is between the equity return and the risk-free rate. You know, there are times like the year 2000 in which the equity risk premium was negative because you had a price to earnings ratio in the market of, let's make it easy, 33 times earnings. 33 times earnings is $33 that you pay for every $1 of earnings. We'll just inverse that. One over 33 is your yield that you receive by owning equities. One over 33 is 3%. The 10-year treasury in the year 2000, I don't have it in front of me, let's say it was 4%. So you had a treasury rate paying you 4% and a, let's say, an equity earnings yield, earnings divided by price, paying you 3.33%. So that would be what's called a negative equity risk premium. I mean, that was like a perfect example of like a bubble scenario, the tech bubble in 2000, 2001, mm -hmm. 2002. Right now, the S&P 500 is somewhere in the neighborhood of what's called eight times, 18 times earnings, 17 or 18 times earnings. So that is somewhere a little bit north of one over 17 or 18 is somewhere a little bit north of 5%. Let's call it five and a half. And so on a 10-year basis, you have your treasury at three and a half percent and you have your 
equities earning five and a half, assuming there's no growth in the equity markets. And so your risk premium there is 2%. I think that that is likely low. I mean, this is all theoretical, right? But either earnings have to grow in equities at a higher rate than the fixed rate that 10-year treasuries pay, or valuations have to come down, meaning the stock market has to decline to be able to be acceptable of just a 2% risk premium to treasury. So that's the theory around interest rates. It's never worked in lockstep, but you know, theoretically, you would want to earn a substantially higher rate of return by virtue of owning stocks than you know, fixed treasuries. We went back and looked at a Vanguard study. Remember this asset allocation study by Vanguard, and they go all the way down from 100% bonds to 100% equities. And I think going back to 1926, 100% bonds has earned somewhere in the neighborhood of 5.5% annually, and equities have earned in the neighborhood of 10% annually. So that risk premium there is like 4.5%. Mm-hmm. So you would expect either earnings grows rapidly, so that your price to earnings ratio comes down because earnings is growing rapidly, or the price comes down, so your price to earnings ratio comes down to meet that historical risk premium. I don't know where the market's going short term. It's something that if we have a recession or higher interest rates, you would expect a reduction in valuation. But uh, like we said earlier, we have no crystal ball and we just expect the world to blow up once or twice a decade and plan accordingly. All right. I couldn't have said it better myself. All right. Well, guys, thank you so much for joining us today. This Lanyap podcast with Greg and Doug Stokes. If you enjoyed this, please give it a five-star like and share it with your friends, colleagues, and family. And we look forward to hosting you guys again on our podcast. Thanks so much. Thanks for listening to this episode of Lanyap. This podcast is brought to you by Stokes Family Office and produced by Reverb. If you liked this episode, consider sharing it with a friend. You can subscribe to future episodes in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. For more information about Stokes Family Office and Lanyap, visit us at stokesfamilyoffice.com. The information in this podcast is educational and general in nature and does not take into consideration the listener's personal circumstances. Therefore, it is not intended to be a substitute for specific individualized financial, legal, or tax advice. To determine which strategies or investments may be suitable for you, consult the appropriate qualified professional prior to making a final decision.